Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the latest Autosport podcast, where we will be looking at the life of Carlos Reutemann. I'm Marcus Simmons, Deputy Editor of Autosport magazine, and I'm delighted to welcome two guests. The first is a man who was a Formula One contemporary of Reutemann's, and he's still very active today as a commentator for the GT World Challenge Europe. So he's gone from racing against the Fittipaldi brothers to raving about the Van Tor brothers. And just a few days ago, he was reunited with the Formula One Penske PC4, in which he won the 1976 Austrian Grand Prix at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. I am, of course, talking about John Watson. Welcome, John. Thank you, Marcus. Looking forward to a long chat about Carlos Reutemann. <laughs> and was it a good experience at Goodwood, getting back in that Penske? Uh, let me just say, it was like an old girlfriend. Sometimes you've got to work your way around. On the final runs on Sunday, I felt more comfortable. And, and certainly, Goodwood is a hill that you have to respect. Also, the car. I mean, PC4, it's a car owned by Doug Mockford and uh, very much... Bearing in mind, it's, it's not a factory Penske, it's a privately owned car. So respect the car, respect the hill, look after yourself as well. Yeah. And, and you didn't have a beard to shave off this time after, uh, after getting out of it. <laughs> I had the beginnings of about a three-day growth, but because Roger was there, I was mindful of the fact that he likes all his drivers to be relatively, I would say, clean-cut, clean-shaven, whatever. So uh, when it was appropriate, I looked uh, clean-shaven. Our second guest is a veteran Argentinian journalist and the country's autosport correspondent for probably more years than he cares to remember. And by a happy coincidence, he's lived with his family for the past 34 years in the very village where Carlos Reutemann made his car racing debut. So welcome to a man who, despite his name, is not related to John. It's Tony Watson. 
Yes, thank you in first place for, for asking me and inviting me to be with you this morning. Very touching, talking of, of Carlos, who had been in quite a lot of contact, mostly by telephone in these last years. And we had always spoken of when he retired from politics, that he would come up here and we would do some lapping of the circuit in which he made his debut. But unfortunately, well, that we might do, meet up there in heaven someday and be able to meet up there. But it won't happen now. Just to start with you, really, um, yeah, just talking about Carlos's career in Argentina before he came to Europe, which started in, in 1965. And you know, in, in Europe, most of the drivers would start racing in a production-based car like a Mini or in John's case, an Austin Healey Sprite, and then move into single seaters and perhaps make their name in Formula 3. But what was it like for um, a young Argentinian driver like Carlos 1965 and um, getting racing well he was about three years old at the time he didn't own a car to go racing with but there were two brothers in his uh, native santa fe uh, he was born uh, about 30 miles from the actual city of santa fe they were seeking a driver for their group two fiat uh, 1500 uh, the negative was that there was another candidate also vying for that drive so the brothers decided on a shootout between these two hopefuls on the hilly and these paved roads of where I live here, actually in La Cumbre, which is about uh, 300 miles west of Santa Fe. Fortunately, Carlos got the drive and he made his uh, racing debut here on May 30th of 1965, the year that you pointed out, Marcus, on those same uh, La Cumbre roads on a circuit that uh, has got to be known as the Argentine Nürburgring. The debut was not too much of a success because some um, experimental connecting rods didn't cooperate that day, and he only lasted about uh, two or three miles in the race. But things got better for him after yes, that. Yes, because a month and a half later, uh, very close to La Cumbre, um, in another touring car event, he absolutely clobbered all the opposition with the now more uh, reliable Fiat 1500. From then on, well, he just took off. And it was still, yeah, it was touring car racing, wasn't it? Up until um, the Temperada series at the end of 1968, which I think was his single-seater debut. So um, what, was, what was the impression he was making up until then? The brothers also had in their workshop an old De Tomaso Formula 3 chassis. Better not uh, ask me how it got there. So they plonked a 1.5 litre Fiat into it. And in 1966, they entered the car in uh, this country's blue ribboned uh, 500 miles of Rafaela on the famous Oval. He was racing against behemoths with engines, all front engines, that were about three times the size of the little Fiat. And notwithstanding that, uh, Carlos made it to, I think, fifth or sixth place after just over four hours racing. So he was already attracted, you can see, to uh, single seatings. And he admits to have read uh, people like Paul Freire and Piero Taruffi's book. You know, he was always so uh, technical about the way he went racing. So you have a good basis there. That was very much the Carlos Reutemann style, wasn't it, John, when, when, he, when he was in Formula One very 
very technical and studious about about the whole aspect of it. Well, I, I first I think met Carlos would have been actually 1970 when the Automobile Club de Argentina entered two Formula Two Brabham's painted white with yellow uh, stripes. Carlos Roche, Carlos Reutemann, managed by a I would say small statured Hector. Now I don't know her second name, Tony. You might know her second name, Hector. What was it? Hector Staffer? And little Hector Staffer, small in statue, but big in personality and character. And uh, so that's when I first met Carlos. And then obviously he started Formula One in 72 and he had pole position for the Argentine Grand Prix, which I think sort of set the establishment a little bit back on their heels. But that was a, a very, very you know, appropriate way to start a Formula One career in your home Grand Prix in pole position. I got to know Carlos, I suppose, Drip fed all the way through that era, 70 to my Formula One, full-time full Formula One career, starting in 74, again, in Buenos Aires. I have to say now, and I'm not saying it because of Tony or Carlos or Hector Staffer, but when I went to Argentina in 1974, it was an unbelievable experience. And I think it is one of the most wonderful and beautiful countries in the world. I've got a soft spot for Buenos Aires. I just love the atmosphere, the feel that the city generates. Just a magnificent country. And I think it's a great shame we're not going back to Argentina on a regular basis because to me it's just just very, very strong and positive memories. Going back, Tony, the, to the Formula 2 Temporada in 1968, I mean, you mentioned, and I, I didn't know this, you mentioned that Carlos had already driven uh, single-seaters with the, the Tommaso. Um, but the, the Temperado was when he really um, was able to measure himself, wasn't it, for the first time against the visiting Europeans? Yes. Uh, after about a 10-year hiatus, Argentina was trying to get back onto the international Formula One calendar. So they thought it would be a good idea to organize a four-race program at the end of 1968, you know, end of season sort of stuff, uh, out of championship. And... Um, uh, two technos from a privateer's team, I won't say the name of the owner of the team, but two very second-hand technos were offered to uh, two drivers, two Argentine drivers, who came out of a six-driver shootout. And Carlos, uh, absolutely, again, he, he, he surpassed everybody in that shootout. So he and the other driver were given these two technos and there was very little they could do with them because they were sort of starting money specials. However, um, on the fourth, on the last of the four races, a privateer Brabham BT-23C, which had been uh, brought out by the La Razón people, which was a local newspaper, was offered to him because the other driver, you know, had had a disagreement, I think, with the owners. And that day... Uh, in the first heat at Buenos Aires, which was, as I said, the last race, in the first heat, Carlos finished eighth. And excuse me, I've got it written down. He was eighth behind Pierce Courage, Joaquin Rint, Jean-Pierre Beltoas, Joe Siffert, Trey Regassoni, Jackie Oliver, Henri Pescarolo, and Tino Brambilla. He was, you know, the best of the rest, I'd say, that day. In the second heat, unfortunately, the engine gave up the ghost and, um, well, it was enough for the Automobile Club Argentino to realize that they had, you know, a very good candidate on their hands uh, when they decided to, in 1969, 
the year before he went to Europe, they they made up a team of the old Formula 3 chassis, which had been used in this country. They, again, put in some uh, highly tuned 1.5-liter Fiat engines, and Carlos wrapped up, but I mean wrapped up is an underestimation, I'd say, or understatement. He absolutely wrapped up the Formula 2 championship of Argentina that year. So much so that when the Automobile Club, as John pointed out, went to Europe in 1970, Carlos was first on the list. It's quite an interesting undertaking, wasn't it, for, for a team from Argentina to, to go to Europe. You, the, the easier way would have been to uh, get a couple of cars run from the Brabham factory or something like that. But for the for a team to be set up to go to Europe was was uh, quite, a, quite an interesting thing to do. There was uh, quite a bit of mistrust referred to some managers on your side of the ocean, Marcus. That's why they decided to buy two brand new Brabham's and six brand new, what would that be, the Cosworth BDA or the FBA? That would have been a Cosworth FBA, 1.6 four valve, Ford based engine, based on a, on a basically a Ford, standard Ford block, but with the Cosworth cylinder head and all the goodies that uh, Keith Duckworth and Mike Austin would have generated. So 1.6, 200 and maybe 30 brake horsepower, uh, but based on a production-based engine. And and John, you you'd got yourself you you'd got your hands on the same equipment, hadn't you, for that year? You'd got a Brabham BT30 with with an FVA um, engine, and that was that was your f- you'd done a bit of Formula Two before then, but that was your first proper um, proper a- attempt at a European season, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. I'd done Thruxton '69 in the X. Uh, well, I think it was the Essex Essex Arrow and whatever it was club. This car that Jackie Oliver had raced in 68, 69. It was the car, regrettably, that Jim Clark, not the actual car, but the sister car, that Jim Clark was driving at Hockenheim in 1968. So anyway, uh, 1970 was a, a full-on season, but it was done on a much smaller scale than the ACA because it was a family operation. My mother and father and sister were all part of it. Uh, bought a brand-new Brabham chassis, got a couple of, I think they were ex-Winkleman racing, Cosworth Ford FEA motors and set off with a mechanic, one mechanic and myself, to the events. Whereas ACA was you know, a, a, a big operation, um, as you'd imagine, from an auto, a national automobile club of any country. And Hector was the boss. Uh, I say Carlos Reutemann, Carlos Roish were the two drivers. Uh, but it was running away and I don't mean this as any derogatory sense, but it was run in a sort of a military way. I know from memory there was issues about lack of flexibility in, in the manner in which the team was run, which may or may not have contributed to taking a little bit of time for the, the, the certainly the, the, the prowess of Carlos Reutemann to come through. So it was run very much by Hector Staffer and... Uh, Look, the cars looked immaculate. It was great to have them. But it was later in the year when I think then the reality of that you can't just stick to the script. You have to go off message sometimes to get the best from your team, your car and your driver. Mm. I mean, he, he did have some good results, didn't he, Tony? I mean, there, there was uh, third, third in his heat at Crystal Palace. He had a pole at Hockenheim in a non-championship race, but which still had a good entry. 
um, and then um, got some points back at Hockenheim just before the end of the season with, with a team that was a very much an entirely Argentina crude, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, I think as the season, you know, advanced, things, you know, they found themselves more at home. Um, they had had to miss the, the first, the opening two, uh, Formula 2 round of 1970 at Thruxton because the cars weren't ready. So uh, the debut, I think, was at Hockenheim on the precise date of his 28th birthday. What a coincidence. Where he had that misunderstanding with Doc and Rint, I think, at the end of that long return straight, uh, returning to the stadium sector, in which I think um, Rint was uh, dumped off the track, and I think he had some very strong words towards Carlos at the end of the race or after that first heat. But uh, I think the, the, the season from then on, you know, went frankly quite upwards. The, things got better. And in 1971, um, well, uh, I think he was, he, he was second behind Ronnie Peterson in the championship. Before that Formula 2 season in 1971, he did, he did a couple of interesting things um, back at Buenos Aires. Um, and he had, um, he had an outing in the 1,000 kilometres in a Porsche 917 with Emerson Fittipaldi. Um, and, um, and then he made his Formula 1 debut in what was then the non-championship Grand Prix in the um, McLaren M7C run by Akiri Bonnier. And that was quite an old car by that stage, wasn't it? Uh, it been raced by Bruce McLaren in 68, John Surtees in 69. And a very good performance to finish third on aggregate behind Chris Amon in the Matra and Henri Pescarolo in the Frank Williams March. I remember him saying that he absolutely loved that McLaren. He, he said that the additional power from the Cosworth DFV Compared to the FBA, gave him a, a feeling of of safety or security when when negotiating the the really uh, fast corners. You know that extra power sort of helped him. He, he said to get out of uh, difficult uh, positions, but he he spoke very highly of that uh, car which they had rented from a courier bonnet. We were all. Uh, Tremendously enthused by, by his third place. I mean, to see him on, on the podium, Chris Amon won that race. It would be his luck that he won a Grand Prix without any world championship points, but he, he, he won the race. And I'm not sure who, if it was Pescarolo who was second, and there was uh, Carlos in third place, so couldn't have been better. And then he had the he returned to Europe for the Formula Two season. John, what do you remember of that? Because um, as Tony mentioned, Carlos finished second in the championship. Very consistent scoring with that ACA team. But you, you did say that they were beginning to loosen up a bit with their uh, with their direction and, and be a, a little bit less rigid. I th- well, I think that uh, in the second year, obviously, the team had gained a lot of experience uh, and a, a greater understanding fundamentally of Formula 2, which at that time was extremely competitive. And your two principal manufacturers, one was Brabham, which is what Carlos had and I had and others had. And then you had the March team with uh, principally led by Ronnie Peterson in a factory March with factory brown hard engines. And Ronnie was one would consider to be the principal title challenger. The racing was just really, really intense, competitive. The worst thing of all was going to a slipstream circuit like Hockenheim where we'd run without any wings, there were no chicanes, 
you come into the stadium, exit the stadium, there's a flat out blast all the way down to the east curve, another blast all the way back into the stadium. And those were high speed slipstream races, which was the quick and the brave, to be truthful. But to go back to the comment of the question, I think that over the second season in 1971, the team enabled Carlos, in particular Carlos Reutemann, to display or illustrate his ability and skills and to move onwards and upwards within the world and family of Formula Two. Yeah, and and he um, yeah he ended up finishing runner-up to Ronnie Peterson in that championship. Um, also, um, as they'd had with the Temperada in Argentina three years uh, before then, there was a, a, an end-of-season Brazilian uh, mini-series uh, called the Torneo. Uh, he was runner-up in, in that one as well, um, only beaten by Emerson Fittipaldi on a, on a wins countback. So, um, yeah, it was very much uh, suggestive that he would he could do the job in Formula One. And uh, sure enough, Brabham for... 1972 had a new owner called Bernie Ecclestone who um, signed him up for um, for that season and and Tony um, Carlos made his world championship Formula One debut in Argentina um, at the beginning of that season and and took a pole position which must have been absolutely incredible for uh, for, for everybody who was there in those days I didn't have a pit pass um, I used to watch those races from outside, but I can assure you that to get through the, the entrance gates with uh, Carlos' pole position on Sunday was, was a major feat, really. It was absolutely chock-a-block with people, the, the place. Lovely to see it again. That pole position was a bit unexpected, but there's another car in which he stated that he absolutely felt very much at home with the, I think it was called the Lobster Claw BT-34. They didn't quite get the task uh, strategy very well because the car, um, he might have led the first meters, but I think Jackie Stewart was into the lead uh, shortly after. And then Emerson got through him, got past him uh, one or two laps later. And the car sort of, I think he sort of fell to uh, seventh place uh, eventually. Um much to the lament of of all of us, really. But he had certainly made his mark with that pole position on Saturday afternoon. And he also um, had a, a third season in Formula Two that year um, with um, with a new team or a relatively new team called Rondel Racing, who were running Brabham's, which were um, which was run by uh, a young chap called Ron Dennis and uh, his friend Neil Trundle. Um, and uh, yeah, John Rundle Racing were causing quite an impression by that stage for their uh, standards of preparation and image, weren't they? I mean, what, what was the what was the reaction to them? Well, Rondell Racing came in. Uh, I mean, they, they started in '71, in fact, with BT 36s, uh, and then in effect became de facto, I suppose you might say, the Formula Two, the factory team, albeit that they were, I think, cars that were purchased by Rondell Racing. And Carlos was one of the two, I think, two drivers. Unfortunately, in the round at Thruxton at Easter weekend, Carlos had a, a failure in the car and resulted in a fairly heavy impact. And I think he fractured an ankle. So there was a little bit of um, discussion between, I think, the team entrant, Rondell, 
and the Brabham factory as to where the liability for the incident lay. And I don't know if, if that ever was resolved because it was Ron Dennis and Bernie Eccleston arguing the toss. And they ended up arguing the toss until the present day, if they had a chance. <laughs> well, sure enough, um, they turned constructor in their own right the following season. So, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I'm going to fast forward a bit, John, because um, yeah, that that accident for Carlos um, left him out, left him out of the cockpit for a few weeks, and, and kind of disrupted both his seasons. But um, for 1973, he was he was back with Brabham. Um, and you had an opportunity with Brabham in Formula One as well, didn't you? Um, because you were um, you were called up to race in the, the non-championship race of champions at Brands Hatch. And I think from talking to you before, there was the chance of some um, a, a fair few Grand Prix that season as well. Well, essentially, I'd, I'd assigned a contract to drive for Bernie fundamentally in Formula Two in 1973. Did one race at Mallory Park, which was the opening round. And then the race of champions at Brands Hatch. And that was the introduction of the Brabham BT42, which was Gordon Murray's revolutionary uh, interpretation of Formula One rules. And the thing that noted the, the BT42 was it, was it was tiny, basically. It was narrow track, narrow wheel, short wheelbase, uh, and all in the aid of aerodynamics. And Gordon had uh, designed what I would call a revolutionary car because it had that sort of triangular-shaped monocoque. Nobody had done that previously. So there were a lot of new developments coming with the car. I was asked to drive it at Brands Hatch as a non-championship race. So the second driver on the team, and this was to my embarrassment, was Graham Hill. I mean, I stepped out of the way. I would throw my coat in a puddle to let Graham walk over it. And uh, anyway, I got to drive the BT42 in that race. Unfortunately, I'd had a, a minor issue with the throttle. It didn't close cleanly. Coming into Sterling's corner, uh, slow left-hand corner, the throttle didn't close and the car ran on, got onto the, the dirt on the outside of the track and uh, struck the, the, the railway sleeper barrier, which in itself was not a major accident, but the, the construction of the car uh, and areas around the front suspension resulted in the front of the car turning 90 degrees and my leg went with it. So I got a compound, double compound fracture of my right leg and uh, the car was you know, in a pretty poor, poor state. The upside of all that was that, was that Brabham recognized that there was a, an area in that part of the construction of the car that needed to be strengthened. So by the time the team with Carlos as the number one driver on this stage, Wilson Fittipaldi as the number two driver, I think the first Grand Prix that the team rocked up Four with that car would have been uh, the Spanish Grand Prix in Montjuï Park in Barcelona. So two Brabham BT42s and Carlos Reutemann leading the team. And and actually on that um, that Spanish Grand Prix, he came very close to winning it. Um, it was a quite a race of attrition as you often had on that circuit. And with the uh, Less than 10 laps to go, he was closing on Emerson Fittipaldi, who had a puncture, and, and the drive shaft failed on the Brabham. Um, so, so that was the, the first win that went begging. But, um, but a, a few weeks after that, um, obviously recovered from your Brands Hatch accident, you actually made your World Championship F1 debut, didn't you, John, at, at the British Grand Prix, alongside Carlos and Wilson. So what was, what was Carlos like to work with? 
Well, in, in, in fairness, the my debut was in what was the, the, the BT-37, which was a derivative of the BT-34, which Carlos had put in pole position in Argentina in 72. And the car was leased out to Paul Michaels of Hexagon of Highgate. Paul ran a, a motor business in Highgate, had been engaged in motor racing over a number of seasons, ran me in Formula Three, Formula 5000 uh, at, that, at the same time. The car was designated to Hexagon to prepare and run, and it ran in the international racing colours of Highgate of London, which happens to be brown. There are not very many brown race cars in my knowledge, but this one was a brown Brabham BT37. But we were uh, a separate entity from the factory Brabham team. So at that stage, uh, I didn't really have any input or contact with Carlos or Wilson Fittipaldi. They were a separate factory operation, and we were a uh, sort of standalone private entry as you were allowed in those days and we just went about our business and, and thankfully started at the back of the grid and helped helped me avoid the incident in the opening lap when Schechter lost it in front of the entire field. <laughs> okay, but uh, as, as that season wore on, um, yeah, Carlos became more and more competitive, had his first well, championship podium finish at Watkins Glen, finished seventh in the championship. So, um, and then into 74 when uh, Gordon Murray designed the Brabham BT44. Um, I'm going to go back to Tony now because um, that first Grand Prix in Argentina was really Carlos's to win, wasn't it? And then it all went wrong in the closing laps. Yes, uh, talking of, of winning in Formula One, I'll just go back a few months to one or two weeks after that uh, pole sitting Argentinian Grand Prix of 1972, they organized uh, a non-championship event in uh, Brazil. I'm not sure if it was uh, Rio de Janeiro or Interlagos. Carlos it, it was Interlagos. Drove, Carlos again drove the BT-34, and that is what you could call his first uh, Formula One victory, although it was pointless. Well, I think he made a point there by by winning it over quite a quite a uh, good field. Fast forward a year later, and uh, or two years later to 1974, and um, well, yes, that was a, a major. Carlos, I think uh, he didn't tell me about it, but I read about it that he he could see the 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 actual cup of that 1974 uh, Argentine Grand Prix. The night he could practically see it in his dreams. He he couldn't quite make out how how the car had you know run out of fuel. Many people stated or thought that the fact that its airbox over the engine it got loose um, towards the end of the race, and some people started thinking that um, that had led to a a larger fuel consumption, but it had nothing to do. Apparently, they hadn't quite filled the fuel tank to the rim. Uh, prior to the start, and that's what you know ended up uh, meaning that he. Well, I was in the in the uh, again in the in the uh, grandstands that day, and well, there was suddenly s such a big silence that the only thing you could hear were the racing cars on the track. We we couldn't make it up. We couldn't understand it. We couldn't believe it. It was <laughs> absolutely terrible, and I know or I imagine what he must have gone through the deception. You know, not quite believing. He was sort of walking that that Grand Prix at his want. I mean, you know, he had the, the checkered flag practically 
in his sight. The, the first Grand Prix win came fairly soon after that in, in South Africa for, for Carlos. And, and John, that was a year where you were running um, the same chassis, Brabham BT44, in the, in the national racing colours of Highgate, um, of Brown. Um, and um, yeah, Carlos Roisman was, uh, without question, the, the number one driver at Brabham. But uh, around middle of the season, um, Carlos Parche joined the team uh, to drive the other car. And um, there were two more wins for for Reutemann that year in Austria and at Watkins Glen. But but John, what what um, sort of a challenge did Parche pose to Reutemann? Because he was another very quick driver from South America, wasn't he? Yes, he was. But first of all, in, in 1974, up until the German Grand Prix at Nürburgring, we were running a BC42, which was the car from the 73 season. It was only at Nürburgring and there until the end of the year that I had a BC44. Same similar car or as Carlos had, except we had Firestone tyres and Carlos was on Goodyear tyres. But in relation to Carlos Pache, Carlos had been uh, driving for John Surtees, but I think he'd become a little bit unhappy with how things were progressing there. Uh, I don't know what took place to enable Carlos to to move to Brabham, but I do recall at the at either the French Grand Prix or European Grand Prix at Dijon in '74. Hexagon were provided with another Brabham for Hexagon to run for Carlos Pache. And I think Carlos didn't have a particularly good event at Endesia, but he was obviously a, a driver, a very quick driver. He was also a very charismatic person. And uh, I think that in that introduction of Carlos Pache into Brabham, first of all, it brought two top line drivers to Brabham to the to their factory team, but it also brought a character and a personality in a manner at which Carlos Reutemann was a much more self-effacing and a, a, a much quieter personality. So Pache was a, a a person who enjoyed life and every every aspect of living and just getting on and life's for living. And and Carlos Reutemann would be say much more of a a quiet person, not somebody who would want to go out at night and, and you know have fun, go to a club, whatever. There was a difference in the two personalities. But in terms of ability, there was not a huge amount of ability, uh, except that Carlos Reutemann, by being the incumbent in the team, certainly in 1974 would have had the advantage. But by the time 75 came around and Gordon had done an update on the BT-44 into the BT-44B, then I would say both Carlos's knew that each was a you know challenge to the other, and in fact Carlos Pache won the Brazil Grand Prix in '75 uh, in a BT 44B. Yeah, I mean they, they were very evenly matched in '75, weren't they? I mean um, Carlos Reutemann finished third in the championship um, that year, um, and he's you mentioned the win Carlos Pache had in Brazil. Um, Carlos Reutemann had one win as well um, uh, on the Nurburgring Nordschleife. Um, it was a much more consistent season, but um, but the the actual front line pace seemed to drop away slightly, didn't it? With the with the resurgence of Lauda and Ferrari, and um, you know Emerson Fittipaldi and McLaren still being very strong that year. Well, you know it's difficult to judge. Um, I mean, Nicky was the dominant driver in ultimately in seventy five and seventy six, other than 
I mean, the accident at Nürburgring then that took the championship away from him, and McLaren stepped up to the plate with James Hunt, and James did a great job in that second half of the year to take the championship away in Japan. So I still believe that the Brabham was the equal of any of the cars out there in terms of its overall performance. I tell you what, I wish I'd been in a BT44B in 1975 because I think I could have won races because I think the car was consistent and quick enough to do so. Mm. Um, well, that's that's an that's an interesting point actually, um, because it, more even more so in the light that um, they decided to make the switch to the Alfa Romeo flat twelve engine for nineteen seventy six, which um, which was a bit of a disaster at Brabham, wasn't it? Um, in that in that first season, and and Parche very much got the upper hand on Reutemann, who you know, re reports at the time suggested he was getting a little bit demotivated and then he um yeah he left Brabham um at the time when Nicky Lauda got injured to uh, to take up a vacancy at Ferrari which then became unavailable when Lauda made his return I mean the, the switch to Alfa Romeo Motors was a commercial uh, reason uh, Bernie had paid more or less all the running costs of running Brabham for what three or four seasons and bringing in a, a manufacturer and remember that Alfa Romeo had a flat 12 engine. It was a very similar engine in most respects to the very successful flat 12 Ferrari engine. And the feeling in Formula One was at this time that the days of the Cosworth DFE were more or less over. So Bernie would have seen the Alfa Romeo engine as being a, a potentially very positive step forward. And if you got a manufacturer to underwrite it, well then what's not to like about it? But certainly I think Carlos Reutemann uh, in 76, and you mentioned whether it was demotivation or whatever, and I think that was the point where Carlos Pacci managed to maybe embrace the team more than Carlos Reutemann was doing, and I think that's where the popularity of Pacci grew in the team in that 1976 season. And Carlos Reutemann, uh, I don't know whether he felt that I'm, you know, there's no point in me pursuing this team and engine package because it isn't going to be a success. And the opportunity to go to Ferrari was opened up after Nicky had his accident, largely because Ferrari felt that Nicky would never make the comeback, or if he did, would never be the man that he was prior to the accident. So Carlos was brought in to Ferrari. But there's, a, there's an aspect of Carlos which I think is interesting to, to consider. And the, the move from Brabham to Ferrari was a move in which I would say he was following a team that was already a success. And after what period at Ferrari, uh, when was his last season at Ferrari? 78. So in, in the 78 season, all of a sudden Lotus is winning everything and Carlos bailed out of Ferrari to get a seat in Lotus. And 78, sorry, 79 was a disappointing year because Lotus produced a, a, a very unusual concept of sliding skirts that have an S bend in the middle of them, which is not a very good way to make a sliding skirt work. So he was at William sorry, at uh, Lotus for a year or, or two years. And then he looked around and saw that Williams was the team to be in. So he, he went through three teams in a very short space of time. And I don't think that that's good for a driver because each team has got its own individual culture and, and way of doing things. And it's not easy to slot in especially you've got incumbents like Lauda, Mario Andretti, and of course at Lotus you have that 
Tuffy from Australia, Alan Jones. It is interesting when you talk about that because he it it was a lot of team changing going on even by the standards of the day, wasn't it? But um, but, going back to when he switched to Ferrari and and eventually it was Clay Regazzoni who made way for him uh, and you um, replaced Carlos at um, Brabham, didn't you, for 77? So what did, I mean, the, the car was more competitive that year, wasn't it, in 77, but still didn't have the reliability. I think that the Brabham was uh, a car that, in 77, had it had the reliability, and there wasn't always an engine reliability. There were other reasons as well. I mean, Dijon running out of fuel on the final lap, Silverstone midway through the race, another fuel problem. The car was a quick car. Um, It was probably a quicker car than the Ferrari of the day. And the nearest competitor in reality was, was the McLaren of James Hunt. Lotus were on the cusp because they'd introduced the Lotus 78. So that was getting better. And it was, of course, the beginning of the introduction of ground effects, which nobody had really cottoned onto uh, in 77. Um, and as a consequence, the, the benefit of having a flat 12 engine was then negated because you needed a V-shaped engine, not a, a horizontally opposed engine, to enable the car to have proper ground effect tunnels fitted to it to get the benefit of the the downforce that generated. So all of a sudden the Cosworth engine was given a new lease of life because it was the perfect configuration. And uh, Brabham and uh, Ferrari were sort of lumbered with a flat 12 engine in itself, a very fine piece of engineering, but not good enough to challenge in 1978, Colin Chapman's Lotus 79, which wiped the board of the championship. Yeah. And and the other the other aspect, John, in '77, um, was uh, was just the, the sheer psychology psychology of it, wasn't it? And you've you've told me before that Nicky said words to the effect that he was going to destroy Carlos at that team, and uh, yeah, it's very much set out to do that. Well, I've got experience of Nicky. We were teammates on two different occasions, and he was upset that that um, when he made his return to Maranello, that it it was more or less made clear that Carlos was going to be the lead driver. And you know, Nicky is, or was sadly, tenacious and you know very, very focused, to say the least. And I know there was a test, maybe at Maranello or something, and Carlos had gone out and set the car up and set a time. And Nicky then got into the car and came back and said, oh, look, car, car's shit, car's shit. Do this, do this, do this, it'll be quicker. And of course, it turned out that he was right. And Nicky then very quickly re-established himself as the number one driver in the team. Albeit, I don't think there was a contract that stipulated who was number one and number two. But actually, you don't really need a contract unless there's specific issues that need to be dealt with. Because the manner in which Nicky uh, was able to work and has worked all through his motor racing career was very, very effective. And, you know... It's easy to beat a guy on a racetrack. It's a lot harder to beat him away from the racetrack. And that's where Nicky did all his good work, was away from the racetrack and created the facility and the situations that enabled him then to go out and win another championship in 77. Hmm. And, and then he, he walked away from Ferrari for 78 and joined you at Brabham. Um, and uh, Carlos at Ferrari was joined by uh, the young Gilles Villeneuve. Um, and... It seems that um, that Villeneuve was the teammate with whom Roisman got on best. 
during his F1 career. And it was also his most successful year as a driver in terms of Grand Prix wins, uh, if not his championship position. Um, third only behind the Lotuses, which, as you've mentioned, were, were dominant. And the other interesting thing was that they were um, they were on the Michelin tyres, which only Renault had used up to that point. So um, you know, how how important was that um, you know, the Carlos Ferrari Michelin thing? It, it sort of made them fairly unpredictable that year, didn't it? Well, I think the reality is that Michelin came in with radial ply tyres, where Goodyear at that time were still running a, a bias or a cross ply tyre. And while Goodyear made really excellent race tyres, I think that, that Michelin moved the, the technology game forward. And in effect, what, in my view, it did certainly, forget about Renault because they were in the infancy of developing turbocharging. But what I think it, it enabled Ferrari to do was to, to remain competitive. Uh, let's say, had they been in Goodyear at, in the 78 season, I don't think they would have had the results that they had by being on Michelin. So I think the tyre was a, a, a sort of a filler to having virtually no ground effects because the car and the tyres worked very harmoniously. And I mean, certainly I mean, Silver from 78, Carlos won. I can't remember any of the other events, but certainly still, our brand's hat stands out. So the, the car on Michelin with Carlos as the lead driver and a, a young, you know, unbelievably quick Canadian uh, you know, chomping at his bit. Mm. I mean, he also won um, the other races that year were Rio, Long Beach, and Watkins Glen. Um, and but then Ferrari were bringing Jody Schechter in for '79. Um, Carlos went to Lotus for a, for a season. And um, what is quite easy to forget is that um, after the first six or seven Grand Prix that year, he had the second highest number of points. Um, in that Lotus, um, behind only Jody Schechter, uh, but then didn't score again. Um, and then, as you've mentioned before, the Williams be became the car to beat later in '79, and he joined them for 1980. But, but that was a that was a proper mismatch, wasn't it? Carlos Reutemann and Alan Jones together as teammates. Well, it, it, I don't know why it should have been a mismatch, but yeah, going into Williams at that time with Alan Jones as the incumbent driver, it's a bit like walking walking into the lion's den. I mean, Alan Jones is a, a very, very good race driver. I mean, race driver, not just driving a racing car, but he is in himself a surly personality. And I mean, Alan is not, has been known to, if he wants to win an argument, he'll use his fists. So also, if you take the position that Alan had established himself within the Williams team, Patrick Head and Frank Williams, they loved him. They loved that sort of personality and character. And Carlos came in, and there are lots of occasions when Carlos would out-qualify or maybe would have out-raced Alan. But I do believe there was something in a contract which Carlos, I think, signed, wherein he, if he had a lead and Alan was within 12 seconds or some time zone anyway, that Carlos then had to defer to Alan to let Alan win the race. And... I think that was a bone of contention for both drivers. But I, I suspect that the kind of home that Carlos would have been most comfortable in would have been a less British bulldog style, you know, cat and bird's eye Patrick Head, you know, running it like a military campaign. And Frank, who was, you know, pretty mercurial, 
in, in running his team as well. And I maybe feel that Carlos would have benefited from a little bit more passion or emotion or an arm around the shoulder at occasions when maybe he was not achieving what he felt he could achieve. Mm. But um, but he still still had that um, fantastic 81 season, didn't he, with uh, yeah, two two world championship wins, one in Rio where he didn't obey the team orders, um, one at Zolder, which he won from pole, and not to mention the South African Grand Prix at the beginning of the year at Kyle Army, which he won extremely well in tricky conditions, but it, it never counted for points because that was the first race of what was going to be Bernie's Breakaway Series, wasn't it? Um, but those, those were turbulent times, weren't they? But do, do, you, think, do you think Carlos deserved to win that 81 championship over Nelson Piquet or, or do, you, do you think it was only his fault for throwing it away? Well, I think I, I, I don't like to use the word deserve. I think it, it, it sounds as if you didn't succeed, but you deserve. In my opinion, Carlos had done everything he should have done or could have done to win the world championship in 1981. But when we went to Las Vegas, there was something that didn't seem to click, particularly in the race. And I remember in the race because I caught and overtook him. Uh, I've never seen a driver looking in his mirrors as often as Carlos was doing. He seemed to be looking backwards rather than looking forwards. Now, I've had you know, conversations with Carlos's friends, Peter Windsor in particular, who has got chapter and verse and what he thinks was the reason why Carlos didn't succeed. And there was some issue about some kind of changes that were made between qualifying and the race. And Peter will go on about it as long as there's day and light. I don't know the true story. And tragically, now Carlos can't tell us it either. But in my view, Carlos would have been the more rightful champion than Nelson Piquet. Piquet, to say he lucked in is not fair either. He did what he did to win the championship. He became the 81 world champion. But I think that Carlos would have been, in my mind, the more rightful world champion. But without going back over the history books and looking at every individual race and analysing what took place, um, I can't say. But the one there was one event which I think stood out in that season. It was in qualifying when Carlos put the Williams in pole position at Monza. And it was one of those li- one of those laps that you could say it was a lap of the gods. It was just a sensational lap where he found the speed or what he did to get the speed. I don't think anybody really understood. But it was that kind of performance that Carlos had the capacity to deliver. But whatever went wrong in Las Vegas or whatever got into his head in Las Vegas, I- I'm not, I don't know. But certainly it looked to me as if he was driving in a, in a rather negative way rather than the way that we knew he could do. Mm. Yeah, it, it was um, it was second on the grid at Monza because uh, Rene Arnoux had the Renault on pole, but, right. um, but uh, Reutemann did a, a 34-1, and the next quickest Cosworth car was a 35-3, um, Alan yes. Jones, his teammate. And, yeah. and as you say, incredible around a circuit like that, where there's not, you wouldn't have thought there'd be many places where the driver could make much of a difference around there. There's not an awful lot, but I mean, if, if you just got everything absolutely spot on, if you got your tyres prepared correctly, I mean, in those days, again, I think, I don't know whether Brab, sorry, Williams were running on Goodyear's or running on Michelin. Uh, I think they may have been on Goodyear's. So Goodyear had a very good qualifying tyre, but then Alan Jones would have had the same tyres. Just the, 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 maybe the touch and feel that Carlos had at a high-speed circuit with a low downforce configuration gave him that advantage, where maybe Alan with the, a higher downforce circuit and you know a, a different aggressive style of driving, maybe that would have given Alan Jones an advantage on that style of track. 
But whatever Carlos did, I mean, I know that in terms of his performance, it was a major standout performance. Yeah, you mentioned Goodyear and Michelin actually, and that was that was something I wanted to touch on because um, because of the the politics in F1 at the time, Goodyear had pulled out um, for the '81 season, then returned for the French Grand Prix in the middle of the year with Brabham and Williams, um, and then I think picked up Lotus and Tyrrell during the second half of the season. Um, but it was at that point where Reutemann's performances seemed to drop off, especially relative to PK and Brabham. So was he more of a, in, in just from your impressions, would, would he have been a driver who suited the Michelin better than the Goodyear at the time? I mean, he was renowned for being very precise, wasn't he? And, and, and quite methodical with his driving. Yes, I mean, Carlos drove in a, in a, in a way which was a, certainly... A, if you want to put it in, in terms of driven in a, what I, a very attractive, a beautiful driving style, he wasn't a chuck it and catch it kind of guy. I mean, if you take someone like his teammate at Ferrari, Gilles Villeneuve, I mean, all Gilles did was rag the Ferrari to death. Where Carlos would have been almost as an artist behind the wheel, painting a picture on the on the tarmac. And I think that all the way through his career, that was the, the standout characteristic of how Carlos drove. But Having been on Michelin at Ferrari, and I, I assume that Williams were on Michelin initially in the early part of that season, then going, the difference between the two tyres was still, Michelin was a radial ply tyre and the Goodyear was a cross ply. And on certain circuits, I think the Michelin had a, an advantage primarily because uh, a, a, a radial ply tyre at high speed doesn't grow in the way that a, a, a Goodyear or a bias tyre grows. And the, the, the consequence of that is, if your rear tyre in particular is growing, and it was quite considerable, you could see it in a photograph, then what it would do would actually raise the rear right height of your car upwards, which then in turn could, I'm not saying it did, but could cause a certain amount of the downforce that was being entrapped by the sliding skirts, could allow some of that to bleed away. And it's only a theory, I don't know whether there's any validity in it, but I just wonder, had that anything to do with a confidence factor that maybe he didn't enjoy how the, the Goodyear tyre on a very high-speed circuit would have performed? And having said that, he did that blinding lap at one of the fastest circuits in the world, at Bonzo. It's one of the ultimate what-ifs, isn't it? And um, going back to Tony, um, yeah, what, what, was the, what was the feeling in Argentina when that Las Vegas Grand Prix happened in 81? And it, had, it, it looked like... Carlos was odds-on to win the championship for most of the season, then it slipped through his fingers right at the end. Yes, we were all very hyped up, as you can imagine, uh, Latin temperament and all. But uh, I think we we never could quite make make out what what really happened. I mean, he was very uh, not wanting to to say, you know, to talk much about that after after leaving Las Vegas that afternoon. And, uh, well, I think his team has expressed their point of view. Uh, it all depends on on from what point of view you, you want to see it. Um, there was, you know, a tremendous feeling of deception here because I think he, he arrived at Las Vegas with, with some points ahead of, of PK. And we sort of, I don't know if we gave it for granted, but, he had led the championship, I think, most of that year. 
until that. I think what 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 influenced a lot was he had a. I think he crashed the the chassis he was meant to race in Las Vegas the on on the Friday or the Saturday, and from that moment it all seemed to fall apart. But uh, I'm not very much um, on the ball first to exactly what what happened that that afternoon. Uh, it's it's very difficult to point out. Um, I mean, for an outsider like like most of us fans were in those days. Uh, what what exactly happened? And he, as I say, was never outspoken about the subject. A few months later, obviously, political problems were getting very serious in Argentina, especially uh, especially against us in Britain. Um, Carlos had come; he'd, he'd been thinking of retiring, hadn't he, at the end of '81? But then came back, did the first two races of '82, and then and then retired. I mean, these were. These were difficult days in Argentina, weren't they? And and someone like Carlos probably could have lifted the mood of a country. Um, but how uh, how disappointing was it when he finally hung up his helmet after the Brazilian Grand Prix that year? Well, if you if you think that after Franco's retirement in 1958 uh, until Carlos' uh, inception or entry to Formula One in 1972, 14 years later, was a long period. Um, well, none, none of us or none of the country's fans, you know, uh, wanted, wanted him to retire because, well, he had been so close to the championship the year before, and it was always so, so nice to, to have someone like him representing us down here. So when he announced his retirement, uh, well, the mood was, was very glum. Um, everybody said, well, if he's done the first, I think it was first two races of 1982, why, why can't he continue? And if you realize that at the end of that year, the, the driver who, who, was, who was, you know, who entered uh, Williams, who was uh, K.K. Rosberg, won the championship, well, there was even more grief because one thought, well, that could have been uh, Carlos's championship finally. Mm-hmm. John, John, do you think Carlos could have won the championship in 82 in a Williams? Well, Keke Rosberg won it, and I was in the final Grand Prix of the year, the, the principal challenger. I had to win that Grand Prix and I finished second, and Nick, uh, Rosberg finished in fifth place. And, and I think that I, I'm not persuaded that Williams was the team that, so that Carlos necessarily was most comfortable in. And maybe he would have been a happier player in a, in a European team rather than a British team, or maybe somewhere like Ferrari. And remember, in 82, Ferrari had a, arguably the best car of the year. There are two drivers that could have won the championship. And I've no doubt if Carlos had been in a Ferrari in 1982, he, he would have won the championship because he wouldn't have done the things that Villeneuve did or Peroni did. Mm. Um, again, again, a massive what-if, isn't it? Um, uh, I want to just fast forward a couple of years, John, to the Nürburgring in 1984. There was a race for Mercedes saloon cars and Ayrton Senna was uh, famously won that race against um, who we might regard as the establishment. You were in it as well. Bearing in mind Carlos had been out of racing for a couple of years, he qualified second behind Alain Prost and ahead of Ayrton. Um, and then in the race... Senna won it, Nicky Lauda second, and, and Carlos third. Um, I mean, that must have been 
a really funny race to take part in and, and also um, quite a good performance from him after a couple of years out of serious competition. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, a race which was a, a publicity event for the Nürburgring, but dark bikes for Mercedes-Benz, and they gathered the great and the good, and of course Senna was the, the, the interloper, one might say, amongst those. Senna went there to win that race, and he was hell-bent that he was going to win, whichever he did. I mean, he, he, just, he defined curb hopping in a way that I'd never seen it before. And as regards the rest of us, well, we, we were the, it wasn't going to make or break our reputations. Uh, in fact, I, I was overtaking Lada and made a mistake. And of course, the cars had ABS brakes, so it didn't function the way. doesn't matter what I did. Uh, you know, Carlos, Nicky and Senna, that, that was the top three. Again, a car that you'd drive probably more on feel than drive on you know, just sheer technology because it was a production road car modified to for track use on a, a spec Michelin tire. So the kind of feel that Carlos would have brought to a racing car would have suited him, I think, extremely well. Mm. And, and possibly a, a throwback to his early days in, in uh, touring cars in Argentina. <laughs> um, there's, there's, a, there's a lovely story that I've read, um, and it's about eight years after... Carlos's retirement and also significantly after the Falklands War and um, Carlos Menem, president of Argentina at the time, in, invited a group of celebrities on the first scheduled flight between Buenos Aires and Heathrow um, since, since the war and um, the story is that Carlos, once he landed at Heathrow, got a cab to Paddington, a train to Didcot and then he from Didcot he phoned Frank Williams at the factory to say he was coming to pay them a visit. I mean, does does that tie in with your recollection of Carlos the man? Uh, it, it doesn't particularly. I wasn't aware of the story. Uh, I suppose maybe it was the last team in Formula One he drove for. Um, remember, this is a, at a time when Frank is still an active member of the team. He hadn't you know, the accident that it you know paralysed him didn't happen until 1986. So. Frank would have been, uh, I'm sure he was more than welcoming. And I mean, in terms of what happened between the two nations in 82 is an, a different issue to what would have been the relationship between Carlos as an Argentinian and Frank as a Brit. I don't think there was any sense of animosity whatsoever. Uh, those are political national issues. And I, I don't even think that the reasons why Carlos decided to stop had anything to do with what was going to take place down in the Falkland Islands. It's just, I think the two things, as far as I'm aware, are, are totally separate. Mm. What, what's, what do you make of that, Tony? Um, I mean, and also by the time of that nice little story that I, I mentioned, Carlos was very much uh, a politician by then, wasn't he? Yes, I think it was about 1991. I think he was about 49 years old by then. Um, President Menem um, asked him if he would like to enter politics, and um, Carlos said yes. Um, when he said yes, the feeling uh, for many of us, it was like a, a breath of fresh air when he entered the political arena here. I'd say that there are three words that start with H that you could apply here. Uh, first one was his honesty. Carlos was an example of honesty. The second one was his hands-on approach. 
when he was vying for the first period of governorship of Santa Fe, because uh, he was the sort of person that when he was told there was a problem in his province of Santa Fe, he wouldn't rely on what people told him. He would go there, grab his his car and drive to the place and, and talk to the people. And that's something that, not sure if in the rest of the world, but maybe it's it's not so typical in other parts of the world. And the third word, starting with an H, which made him such a success in politics, was he was such a hard worker. I think that comes from his days as at his father's camp, uh, farm. Um, you know, he, he, he knew what a long day's work was. So he, he really put those three um, words that I've just said really into, into effect. And I think that what must have helped him a lot was that the difficulties and the high-pressure environment of eight years and two Grand Prix in Formula One, uh, that must have been very good training ground for him for the rough-and-tumble life of politics. So I'd say he was... Uh, a very successful and popular politician out down here. I mean, he had two two terms as governor of his province of Santa Fe, and then he had four terms as a senator. I mean, that speaks a lot for the man himself, doesn't it? Because, I mean, when you don't do the things properly, your voters go somewhere else. But uh, that's between 1991, this when he began his first term as governor of Santa Fe and uh, 2021, well, that's nearly 20 years. Uh, it's difficult in politics to be such a long time in term in office. Yeah. And obviously, um, having driven for Bernie Ecclestone and Enzo Ferrari in Formula One, he would have been, would have picked up a, quite a few political skills by then. Undoubtedly. <laughs> Undoubtedly. How significant was the death of Carlos in Argentina because you know, not only a great sportsman but also as you say a very significant and popular politician um, well all I can say is that I, I miss our phone conversations on a personal level uh, we live about 300 miles apart but in the last few years um, it had been very nice interchanging ideas not on a, on a frequent basis, but when he had time. But uh, the general feeling is we're, we're still shocked here. I mean, I know he had been uh, sick some years ago, but um, we thought he, he would get through it again. So um, it's a bit of, bit of a shell-shocking uh, moment. And John, what are your yeah, – just encapsulating – Carlos, as a man and as a driver, obviously your knowledge of him was really from the early 70s to the early 80s. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, what, what do you remember most about him? I think Carlos was a, a genuine, sincere person. Uh, he was a very gifted racing driver who ultimately didn't achieve the accolades or the success that I feel his talent uh, deserved. But unfortunately, one can say that about many people. You know, to succeed in the world of Formula One, you've got to be utterly single-minded, ruthless, self-focused, whatever. And maybe relying on such a natural ability and talent in itself, when you've got other people around you who are using those other tools, 
to their advantage wasn't enough. I mean, I, I can think of other great racing drivers that ought to have been a world champion and didn't get there. And, and sometimes, in fact, having a, a great natural ability and just dependent on that, that ability isn't sufficient. And I suspect that Carlos was maybe one of those drivers. Uh, I, I never saw him as being a political player. Undoubtedly, he would have working for Bernie or working for Enzo Ferrari. He would have seen it, but I don't think he enacted personally uh, any of those games or tricks that would have taken place in and around the teams he was involved with. Guys, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, really appreciate that. And um, John, thanks for your input. It's been, it's been really great to have you on. Tony, thank you very much as well. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.